Hello, friends. Welcome to the deep dive. I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Tim, and this is my YouTube channel, Tim Hatch Live, where we go through both what's going on in the world. That's the deep end last night. And what's going on in the scriptures. That's the deep dive. That's tonight. And it is episode seven of season five. And we are getting into Romans three, verse 21 through verse 31. And let me tell you something, guys, this passage, Romans 3, 21 to 31, is the center of this whole book. If you can get a hold of this, you can get a hold of the scriptures. I'm telling you, that's how important this episode is. So let's get in it, into it, the book of Romans. I'm going to be real straight. I am humbled to teach this text tonight. And the reason why is because this text is that important. You want to talk about theology rich. You want to talk about doctrine rich. You want to talk about good news rich. That's this passage. Let's go over the bubble cam right away. Uh, Romans 3, 21 to 31. Take out your Bibles if you don't have them all already. Uh, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over uh, former sins. And uh, I'm going to stop reading there because we're going to get into the text uh, together as we continue on tonight let's pray father god speak to us this text is so rich so full so wonderful help me to teach it help us to receive it and hear it may your kingdom come through the unfolding of your word into our lives into our families into our societies into this world in jesus name amen 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 so uh i can't say it enough this is the deepest part of the book and in fact, it's going to set up for the rest of the book on how Paul is going to unpack these truths through the lives of Abraham and Adam and himself. And really, the rest of the book is the illustrations of what he teaches in Romans 3, 21 to 20, 31. And I'm, I'm, I'm so, um, I guess I want to just qualify my teaching by saying this. I'm going to miss something. You're like, I'm not going to plumb the depths of this text. There's just no way this is that full. Martin Luther said about this text that this section was the, quote, chief point and very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. <laughs> That's high praise for one passage of scripture, but you're going to see why. Because what Paul's going to say is everything about the gospel is answered here and what it means for us as people are found in these verses. But a quick review of Romans 3, 19. Because remember, in the context of the ancient world, to whom this was written, the Roman church in first in the first century, Paul's writing to a divided church of Jew, Gentile, insider, outsider. The Jews thought they had like some special favor from God over the Gentiles. And because they were Jewish, because they were given the law, because they were, you know, well-versed in the scriptures and the Gentile sinners were kind of like the outsiders. But the problem was the Gentile sinners were outnumbering the Jewish insiders. And so Paul is literally leveling the ground at the, at the foot of the cross, like we've been talking about, and saying we're all saved the same way. And that's what he's going to say in this passage. So uh, backing up real quick, 
Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What? What is he saying? Verse 20, by works of the law, okay, that, that would really apply only to the Jews because they had the law. No human being will be justified, and that's a key phrase here, in God's sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know, John Calvin said this about being justified in God's sight. There is no human action that in the sight of God would not be deemed sinful. Under the scrutiny of the divine. In other words, even our best moral actions are tainted with sin. We talked about that total depravity last week. I want to also remind you of the uses of the law. The, the uses of the law, there's three primarily uh, uses of the law. I actually think there's four, if I could if I could go beyond the boundaries of proper theological uh, uh, understanding. There's three primary uses of the law, though, in historical theology. The first one is to bring us to a knowledge of sin, to convict the sinner. The law exposes our disease. The law exposes our spiritual brokenness, that we cannot do what we want, that, that we cannot obey and live as we should. And it doesn't matter what religious hoops we jump through. We are all sinners. We are all sick with sin. If you go to the doctor with cancer and all he offers you is an aspirin, get a new doctor. He is lying to you. He doesn't care about you. He's going to kill you, right? Jeremiah said that in the Old Testament, that the prophet's that were false prophets. He said, they soothe the wound of my people lightly. In other words, they don't actually get to the root of the problem. They're offering platitudes and they're offering, you know, uh, little Bible tidbits, but they're not dealing with the heart of the issue. And that's why Jeremiah will say, the heart of man is desperately sick and without cure. Who can understand it, right? If someone teaches you how to cook and all they say is, Talk more like Julia Child when you put everything together. <laughs> uh, you're going to fail because you might just need more salt or you might need pepper or you might need spices or whatever. It doesn't matter how much you talk like Julia Child, your food is going to be terrible if you don't apply the right ingredients. Likewise, it doesn't matter how righteous you sound or look. If you don't have the right ingredients, the doctrines we're going to talk about today, your life is lost before God. Yes, lost. Jesus says those very famous words. We've talked about them many times now on this episode on the season because they apply over and over again, over again. Many will say to me on that day, Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful religious works? And he will say, depart from me for I never knew you. All you did was religious stuff. All you did was look good on the outside, but on the inside, there was no heart change. So, Summing it up, we're all sinners. Now what? Jew, Gentile, good, bad, man, woman, old, young, black, white, Asian, African, everybody is a sinner. And now what? That's the diagnosis. It has been diagnosis, 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 and now the solution. And the first two words of Romans 3.21, but now, but now, um, those words, but now, are famous in the Apostle Paul's writings. He's always saying, here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem, but now. And he's really doing that strategically because, I don't know if you ever watch a commercial, but modern commercials are actually predicated on gospel presentations from the early or late part of the 19th century. They really are. 
or actually the early part of the 19th, uh, 20th century. They, they examined how preachers preached the gospel and good preachers do this. They deconstruct and then they offer the solution. And every commercial in America, on television, around the world really, does that same formula. They first tell you what's wrong with you. And then they tell you, here's the here's how our product can fix it. And if you if you just pay three payments of 19.99, you will be fixed. Uh, so they get this actually from the Bible because the Bible deconstructs us, the law defeats us, the law destroys us really spiritually before God. That the gospel might resurrect us and present us righteous before Him. But now. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God. Remember Romans 1.17, right? If we go back to the Bible cam, Romans 1.17, what does he say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Okay, so we get righteousness of God we get a righteousness here in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 21. We get the righteousness of God manifested to us apart from the law. In other words, we, we, we don't earn our way through obedience. There is a new era of salvation. The righteousness of God is the emphasis of Paul's writings. And it's kind of interesting because the wrath of God dominated the Old Covenant, right? If you read the Old Testament, and this is what a lot of atheists have a problem with in the Old Covenant, all the judgments, all the destruction, all the wrath of God. Well, the wrath of God was unveiled uh, in the Old Testament over the course of five, three to 4,000 years of human history. So we just get like the, you know, the Cliff Notes version. So it seems like it's a lot, but there was a lot of patience on God's part. We talked about that in an earlier episode. But the wrath of God did dominate the Old Covenant. In fact, the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, ends Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. The last word in our Bibles of the Old Testament is the word curse. He says, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. The first word out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew chapter 5, when he begins to preach to the crowds, is blessed. So whereas wrath dominated the old covenant, good news, everybody, righteousness dominates the new covenant. We have a righteousness that has been given to us by faith from God. Then this word, back to the screen, back to the text, manifested. So this is the second one we're going to bear down on here. It has been brought to light. Fenero, fenero in Greek, to cause something to be fully known by revealing clearly and in some detail. There is a revelation of righteousness, and this is important because when Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, remember what Jesus says to him, blessed art thou, Peter, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There is a revealing work of the, of the Lord upon our hearts to help us to understand the truth of the gospel. Just like Peter had in Matthew chapter 16, we need it today. And through the teaching of the gospel, through, through the teaching of the scriptures, I believe that happens every time we preach the gospel. It is a manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, this means that the law is not irrelevant because the law and the prophets bear witness to what? To the righteousness that is from God apart from the law. So this is kind of interesting. We don't abandon the law. We don't reject the law. We don't, as one popular pastor said recently, we don't unhinge from the Old Testament. 
And by the way, whenever you hear, listen to me very carefully, whenever you hear a preacher say, it's time to get away from the Old Testament, it's time to stop talking about the Old Testament, run like hell. Because Jesus himself <laughs> validated and vindicated and supported and upheld the Old Testament. He even said, not one jot, not one tittle, the smallest little punctuation marks in the Hebrew language would be removed until all was fulfilled. The Old Testament, okay, is how we understand the gospel. And Paul's going to unpack the gospel through the Old Testament from Romans chapter four onward. In fact, it's one of his favorite skills. Go back and look at the Old Testament. You'll see this, the, how, how God chose to save us through his son. Anyway, the prophets and the law bear witness to the righteousness of God that is apart from the law. And then verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this is important to say that there is the revealing, um, the bear witness, the, the witness bearing, if you will, of the gospel through the law and the prophets because it reminds us that Jesus was always God's plan A. Jesus was always God. He was, not, he was not the afterthought. God did not watch what happened to Israel in the Old Testament and all those nations as they rebelled and rejected him and say, oy vey, because he's Jewish, <laughs> and say, oy vey, what am I going to do now? No. He didn't say, oh, Jesus, they're messing up. You, would you mind going to the cross? No. Mm -mm. This was his plan from the foundations of the earth. The Old Testament did not fail, my friends. People failed. God does not fail. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what he's been doing since he said, let there be light, even before he said, let there be light. The Old Testament unfolds and the glorious, the glorious nature of the gospel is this, that You've got to read the Old Testament through the cross. The cross is unveiled through the Old Testament. The cross is on every page. Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament. And it is a beautiful thing as you unpack the Old Testament through the lens of the gospel. So the righteousness comes not from obeying the law, but through believing and receiving the gospel. Okay, let, let me just do a, a little small example of this. Old Testament bear witness, Old Testament law and prophets bearing witness to the gospel, the righteousness of God that is manifest apart from the law. Abraham lives before the law. He has a nephew. What's the nephew's name? His nephew's name is Lot. At one point, they're traveling together and Lot and Ab Abram have this argument about their flocks and the amount of fields available to their flocks. And so Abram takes the high road. He says, Ab he says Lot, listen, I don't want there to be bad blood between us. So you pick where you want to go and I'll go where the other, I'll go the other way. And the scripture says in Genesis 13 that Lot lifted up his eyes and he looked at the Jordan Valley and it was well watered and he saw the uh, land of Sodom and Gomorrah and he saw how abundant and prosperous it was. So he chose for himself the Jordan Valley and he chose the areas near Sodom and Gomorrah. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. Very famous line in the scripture. Well, eventually, though he moved near Sodom, Really what ended up happening is Sodom got into Lot's heart and he became corrupted and thoroughly embraced the culture. And, and then there was, a, there was an, a war and 
Abram has to muster his 318 men and he goes in and he defeats the kings who are coming against the nation of Sodom and Gomorrah. He actually delivers Sodom and Gomorrah. Kind of weird that he does that. But anyway, he rescues his nephew Lot. And you would think that Lot would say, okay, I've learned my lesson. Don't do that. Don't go live near uh, Sodom. Live near Uncle Abram. Mm -mm. He goes right back and he gets even more immersed into the community of Sodom. In fact, the scripture says that when the angels come, they first tell Abram, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And then they go and they reach out to Lot to say, we're going to save Sod uh, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and we're going to save you. And the scripture says that Lot is at the, at the gates of Sodom, which means that he was literally involved in the government of Sodom. He was that ingrained into the community that he was part of the governing system. And, and Lot greets the angels and he brings them into his house. And this story goes, this is, this is a disturbing story. In fact, I have it available here on the Bible cam. I'm going to show you this on the Bible cam because this is so disturbing. That when the uh, angels show up, the men come to Lot from Sodom. And they say, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we might know them. And that means that we might have sex with them. That we might rape these angels. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, look at this verse. This is Genesis 19, verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do not do anything to these men, for they have come under my shelter, under the shelter of my roof. Can you believe that that Lot offered his virgin daughters to the men of Sodom? What's that telling us? It's telling us that's how ingrained into the culture he had become. This is not a good man, right? This is not a man who's obedient to God. He lusted. He longed after Sodom. He pitched his tent near Sodom. He became the mayor of Sodom. And then he wants to offer his virgin daughters to the degenerates of Sodom. And yet the angels save him. And they say, look, there's destruction coming. You've got to come with us. And the only thing, the only thing that saved Lot, listen, this is so important that you get this, was that he listened. He listened and he believed. And he went with the angels. And they said, don't turn back. And his wife half listened. She left the city, but then she longed for it and she turned back and she rejected their words of warning and she turned into a pillar of salt. And that long story believe it or not, illustrates how righteousness is manifested apart from the law in us through belief. Because, you're not going to believe this, because Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says this, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herd of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world, if by, turn, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Look at this, verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot. What? Righteous Lot. Did you just see in the Bible, Cam, what Lot was doing, willing to do, what it was acting like? And the scripture in the New Testament says he rescued righteous Lot. And then, of course, it qualifies and says he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of, of the wicked. Um, for that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The text is teaching us that Lot was righteous. But if you look at the record of Lot's actions, it wasn't very righteous. Abraham, Abram saved him. The angels saved him twice. He had to be rescued twice. He was longing to be there. All that he did 
All that he did was listen. I'll give you another example since I'm, since I'm on a roll and since I pre-prepared it anyway. <laughs> I don't want to act like I'm just pulling this stuff off the top of my head because I did prepare this. There's a righteousness apart from the law. I want to bring you to the story of uh, Israel itself. How does Israel become a nation? And, and, and I want to lean in on something. I'm going to throw some Latin at you. It's called the Ordo Salutis, the order of our salvation. How does salvation work? Okay. And uh, there's a process by which we become Christians. And it is not the process of becoming a better person, cleaning up your act, getting your act together, trying really hard to serve God. Nope. God intervenes in the midst of our darkness. I bring you to Israel's story. They are slaves in Egypt for 400 years, right? God brings them out through 10 powerful plagues. And, and it's kind of like a decreation. God brings decreation to Egypt. He attacks the land. He attacks the sun. He attacks the uh, cattle. He attacks the crops. He attacks the everybody. And then he brings the death of the firstborn son. Uh, there's the blood of the lamb, right? The blood of the lamb. They go out into the out of Egypt and then they go through the Red Sea. And this is kind of a picture of our baptism. Not a kind of a picture. It is a picture of our baptism. That is what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about. And then he brings them to Mount Sinai where they receive the Ten Commandments. Ladies and gentlemen, they do not receive the Ten Commandments as they are slaves in Egypt. No, 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 no. They receive the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, by the way, once they are saved. It is on purpose in that order, order salutis, to show us that the law does not save them. They are not redeemed from slavery to Egypt because they were handed these 10 laws and they obeyed them. They are redeemed because God is faithful to save. He is faithful to his covenant of promises to Abram, Abraham, and he was faithful to their ancestors and he's faithful to his word and he's teaching them. You're not saved by what you do. You're saved by what I do. And my word brings salvation. And so for a picture for us of this, of this, of, of the story of, uh, uh, Egypt, Israel coming out of Egypt is Egypt is our old life. Uh, Sinai inaugurates our new life. We live according to the new laws of God that now not are written that are not now written in stone, but written as the Scripture says on the tablets of our hearts. Ooh, that's good. And the Red Sea refers to our baptism. So we were enslaved. We got saved through the blood baptized into the family, brought to new life to obey what God wants us to do. Woo! That's how it works, friends. That's how it works. That's the good news. You are not saved through the law. So we got to get into the next part of this text, but let me go to our Logos page. Here we go. And I only want to bring this up because it's important that we look at these texts again, 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 and again in context. So he just got done saying, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then carrying that thought in to verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, that is a heavy phrase. That is a heavy phrase. And we're going to spend some time there. So, Believe it or not, now we got to get to what it meant. Okay, what 
does all this mean? All this text, all that we've been talking about. Well, back to Romans 3.24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Okay, very important theological doctrines. Okay, doctrine matters. In fact, I want to say it very clearly. Proper doctrine saves lives. And we're going to talk about doctrine today. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on your doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We've got to hear the right things if we're going to experience the right kind of life. So that brings me to uh, this week's edition of Doctrine Time. We're going to talk about three words, justification, propitiation, and redemption. Justification, propitiation, redemption. Let's talk about justification first. What does it mean? It means... It comes from the Greek diakono, and it means to be declared righteous, not to earn righteousness. You are declared righteous, righteous. The acquittal of all charges and the provision of right status before God. It's a forensic righteousness applied to the guilty sinner in spite of their sins and regardless of the evidence. You have to see the picture of a judge looking at a criminal who is guilty as sin and the judge says, not guilty. Throws down the gavel. Not guilty. And it's this picture of you are declared not guilty. Freed from the consequences of your sins. Now, that is huge. Let's say first, it's not fair. No, it's not fair. It's grace. And that's why Paul says that you are justified by his grace as a gift. It is not fair. It is grace. And then he says, you are justified through the propitiation. Okay. That, 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 that God, let's go back to Lagos here because it's important that we see it. You are justified by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. We'll talk about that in a second. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a blood sacrifice. Many years ago in the church, in the modern evangelical church, there was this push to avoid the concept of the blood of Jesus. It made literally no sense because the blood of Jesus is the only way we get to heaven. <laughs> you take the blood out of the Bible and you no longer have the Bible. <laughs> it's a book, I forget who said it, but it's a book covered in blood from the very first act of sin to the very end of the book. What is what is the first act of sin? Cain, well, not, not the very first act of sin, uh, is not Cain, but Cain kills his brother, blood, right? Even before then, when they uh, sin in the garden, God kills an animal and wraps them in their animal skins. Well, the Bible ends with the lamb on the throne, looking like he had been slain. Blood, 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 blood everywhere. And so we've got to talk about this term propitiation. Propitiation is a term meaning the idea of turning away anger by the offering of a gift. A guilt offering. That's what it is. Propitiation is, another word for it is atonement. You are making atonement for sin. Now this word propitiation really roils a lot of theologians because they don't like the idea. They don't like the idea that God's anger had to be turned away. 
So they replace propitiation with expiation. And expiation means to put away sin. It means to exit sin. That's another nice way of thinking about it. Expiation, exit sin. Here's the deal. Jesus did both. Jesus did both at the cross. He put away sin once and for all, and he put away the wrath of God through his blood offering, his, that God put him forward as a propitiation. His offering of his blood turns away the wrath of God. Many years ago, there were a couple of hymn writers named Keith and Kristen Getty, and they wrote a song called In Christ Alone. It's a wonderful song. And one of the lines talks about the wrath of God. And the line literally says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, the publishers of the music wanted them to take that line out. They didn't like the idea that Jesus's blood had to pacify the wrath of God or satisfy the wrath of God. And they wanted them to change it to the love of God was exemplified or something like that. Something that rhymed with eyed. And uh, they stood firm. They said, no, this is the truth of the gospel. This is Romans chapter three and doctrine matters. And it's true. And thank God they stood their ground. And it's a beautiful song. And it teaches us proper doctrine, which a lot of modern singing does not do. A lot of modern singing does not do. It teaches about all these touchy-feely emotion things, all these, you know, all these love romance songs with Jesus, but it doesn't talk about the justice of God being met at the cross wherein Jesus offers his blood to pacify, to satisfy the wrath of God. Now, some people have a, co- a problem with this idea of propitiation because they say it makes God look like a cosmic child abuser. No, it doesn't. Jesus was not a child. He was a grown man. He was 33 years old and he willingly laid down his life. He said to to his audience, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down freely and I have the power to take it up again. Jesus was not coerced by the Father to go to the cross. Jesus did not reluctantly go to the cross. Yes, he sweated drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he surrendered his will. Not my will, but yours be done. The exact opposite of what, what Adam did in the Garden, Jesus did in the Garden. He obeyed in the Garden where Adam disobeyed in the Garden. And he surrendered his will. And there is this wonderful passage about the birth of Jesus, where Mary is met by the angel. The angel says, you have found favor with God. And Mary gives birth to Jesus, who becomes the saving work of God, by where, wherein we are protected from the wrath of God if we are in Christ Jesus. Well, you go back to the Old Testament. Again, read the Old Testament through the lens of the, the cross. Noah, the first thing it says about Noah, says that Noah found favor with God, and he built the ark, which withstood the storm of the flood, the wrath of God, who sent the flood? Not the devil. Who sent the flood? Not global warming. Who sent the flood? God sent the flood. And the flood came against the ark, and the ark bore the consequences of man's sins and protected Noah. Noah found favor with God. Mary found favor with God. And, Ma- and Noah built an ark, and Mary provided Jesus. Mary was the one who provided the true. God provided the true ark, but through Mary, that saves us from the wrath of God. You see the beautiful symmetry in the scriptures? You see the beautiful poetic nature of the Bible? It is so wonderful. Now we're not done. That's just propitiation, justification. There's also another term in this text, and that is redemption. And redemption means to release or set free with the implied analogy to the process of freeing a slave. We are redeemed. We are purchased back from our slavery to sin. First Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed with the, 
from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So even Peter is picking up on Old Testament concepts that point to or that unveil the nature of the gospel through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You are justified. So, so here's the formula, justification, propitiation, redemption. This is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Justification, declared righteous, propitiation, the wrath of God satisfied, the sins of the world expiated, wiped away, and redemption purchased back to God. And the question always is, well, if, if redemption had to happen, redemption is a payment, who, who collected the payment? Who collected the payment? Now, ancient theologians wrongly asserted that it was the devil who was paid with the, by the blood of Jesus. That is absolute heresy. No, 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 no. God never owed the devil anything, nor does he owe the devil anything. God ultimately actually holds the devil in total control. The devil is a tool. The devil's an ape. The devil controls, the devil controls nothing outside of what God allows him to control. Remember in the story of Job? He has to go to God to ask permission to wreck Job's life. Remember when Jesus is talking to Peter? What does he say? He says, Satan has sought to sift you like wheat. Well, Satan sought who? Whose permission did Satan, Satan seek? God's permission. God, and let me say something that is profoundly important. The devil does not rule hell. God does. Jesus is in charge of hell. <laughs> Scripture says, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, don't fear him who can build, kill the body and after that can do no more. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Who can destroy both body and soul in hell? God. God is the one who casts judgment upon the human race, either justifies them or judges them eternally in hell. He gets our fear. The payment of our redemption, the, the, the payment of Christ's blood does not go to the devil. It goes to God. Because we owed a debt that we could not pay. What debt? The debt of God's righteousness being, being insulted through our sin. Now, back to this text. Just, just important. The, um, this idea, justification, propitiation, redemption, that, 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 that once again, remember, that God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood so that we might be redeemed and justified. Which means, and this is huge, this is going to rock your world. That Jesus did not just die for men. Jesus died for God. This is so hard to hear as modern Christians. But this is good theology. Doctrine matters. Jesus did not just die for you. Elemental uh, Christianity says, Jesus died for my sins. I would say more mature Christianity says Jesus died for me. But thoroughly proper biblical Christianity declares Jesus died for me, but he also died for God. He satisfied the wrath of God. The reason why we don't talk about this as modern Christians is because we live in a thoroughly, utterly man-centered age of Christianity. Never before have I seen this. Never before have I seen it. That we have turned Christianity into a me-centered me project. We, we worry about what can God do for me? What did God come and give me? How did God come to bless me? How can God fix me? Me, 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 me. It's me-centered Christianity. It's exactly what's happening in the world with a Christian stamp on it. 
people are more narcissists than ever, more into themselves than ever. And and the Christian movement, and there's a lot of pastors who are who are leveraging me-centered uh, ideologies with a Christian label on it to appeal to our sensuality and our selfishness. The prosperity gospel is all about this. God can make you rich. The cool gospel, the cool church gospel is all about this. God can make you happy and fix all your problems and make you awesome. And he's your personal spiritual assistant. And he's there to help you fix yourself. No, no. God exists for God. He, he exists for his glory. He, he exists beyond us. And we exist for him. When David sins against Bathsheba, against Bathsheba and Uriah, remember he sleeps with Bathsheba, he kills Uriah, and he confesses to God. What does he say? Very famous passage. He says, I know my transgressions. This is Psalm 51.3. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, you only. David, you sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. Yes, but ultimately every sin against any man or woman is an assault on the character of God. Because mankind is made in his image. Which brings me to Corinthians, uh, Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Man-centered Christianity is not Christianity. <laughs> God does not exist, okay, to make your dreams come true, to make you wealthy, healthy, sexy, and wise. Yes, he wants to bless you. Yes, he wants to empower you. Yes, and he will. But for his glory, because you were created through him and for him, you were created not for yourself, you were created for him. Just like all things, why did God create humans? Because he was lonely? No, because that's what he is. He is a creator. He is still creating, by the way. The universe is expanding as we speak. What has um, destroyed Carl Sagan's scientific theory of the universe, the cosmos is all that ever was and all that ever will be, is the fact that we discovered recently, I'm, I remind you, that the universe is not static. It is expanding even now meaning that there are new planets being created in the uttermost parts of the universe as we speak. Why? Because that is what God has done. That is who God is. He creates and he doesn't stop creating. Why does God love us? Because we are lovely? No, because God is love. It's who he is. Why does God ask for holiness? Because that's who he is. He is holy. We are not the center of the story is what I'm trying to tell you. And, you, and some Christians really hate this kind of teaching. Let me tell you something. This is the best kind of teaching you can get because it takes your eyes off of you. Do you know why you are so anxious? Because all you think about is you. And the best way to get out of anxiety is to get out of you, to stop thinking about you and your problems and all your worry and to focus on the living God who never toils and never sleeps who is all-knowing and om, om, omnipresent and is sovereign over all things and he holds you in the palm of his hand and no man shall ever pluck you out. That's what sets you free from anxiety. That's what takes the fear of this present world away. The scripture says perfect love casts out all fear 
and his perfect love has been exhibited through the offering of his son for your sins, for himself, that you might be made righteous, no longer condemned and guilty. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. The last half of these two verses Verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So how did God treat the Old Testament saints? He waited for Christ. He he passed over. He looked over former sins. And then he justified them through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Remember, the first rule in the garden was don't eat that fruit. In the day that you eat it, you shall surely die, Genesis 2.17. Well, they ate it, but they didn't die instantly, did they? They died eventually. You shall surely die. And God looked over that sin because he knew the redemption plan was already in place. Remember, he says to the woman about the serpent and the relationship of the woman to the serpent? He says, the serpent's going to strike your heel, but your son shall crush his head. Crush, crush his head. The offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Jesus crushed the serpent's head at the cross. Let's continue. Romans 3.27 says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Or is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Boasting is excluded. What you have to see here, that's, that's what he's just driving home the point again. And if you haven't noticed, Paul loves to do this. He's already done it in Romans 3. He's doing it again in Romans 3. You can't boast. He'll do it in, Ro- in Ephesians 2, that very famous passage, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Not of works so that no man may boast. And Paul himself knew this inherently because he himself was the most righteous person he knew and he could not boast because he knew he was a sinner, that God saved him apart from the works of the law that he so diligently tried to obey. There's no boasting about your salvation. Warren Wearsby said about this verse, I love this and I want to quote him directly. He says, the swimmer, when he is saved from drowning, does not brag because he trusted the lifeguard. (laughs) What a wonderful quote. Why is this important, Pastor? Why are, you, why are you digging in here? Because arrogance is offensive. You don't have harmony in the, in the body of Christ if, if people are uh, pandering and politicking based on their personal righteousness. In fact, I'm going to guarantee you that the most poisonous church you will ever attend is a church that does not preach that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by the by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. You you will someday run into a group of Christians who have been disconnected from the gospel, and they will feel that they are good people, and they are the insiders and the outsiders. And you will see just how poisonous the human pride and the human ego is. This gospel makes us humble and grateful, and there is no more attractive personality on the planet than a humble, grateful person. Someone who's humbled knows that they aren't all that, and someone who's grateful knows that they get, they have more than they deserve. And those people are attractive, and those people are wonderful to be around, and those are the people that God wants on this earth, and those are the people that he wants his church to be. Amen? Here's what Romans 3.21 means. God in Christ justifies the sinner 
God in Christ declares that you are righteous. You, you've got to say it to yourself. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Number two, God in Christ satisfies the wrath of God at the cross. This is important theology. The wrath of God stands against the unbeliever. What are people going to face in eternity in hell? Not the wrath of the devil, of the, devil the wrath of God. Because the, the devil is going to be experiencing the wrath of God for eternity. He's going to be punished eternally. Um, a great theologian, uh, Legan Duncan, said it like this. The difference between heaven and hell is this. Heaven is living in the presence of God with Christ as your mediator. And hell is living in the presence of God with Christ as your accuser, with Christ as your judge, or without Christ as your mediator. I think actually he says that, without, without Christ. So hell is the presence of God without a mediator. Heaven is the presence of God with a mediator. Again, deep theology, not pop American theology. But on this channel, that's why we call it the deep dive because we're getting into the doctrines that matter, not the doctrines that feel good. Because the doctrines that matter actually help you. Anyway, three, God in Christ sets the sinner free through Christ's blood. You are redeemed, set free, bought back. And finally, no matter who you are, this is available to you, Jew, Gentile in Romans. But rich, poor in America, insider, outsider, refugee, native born, third generation, whatever. This is the only way, by the way, that God, uh, this is the only way that communities and families and, and nations come together when we realize that it's not about us and we didn't do it, God did it all. That's number five. That's what it means. Why it matters is because we have to be reminded of some things that before Christ, I stand condemned as a sinner. I am a slave to the sin in me. And this is natural, like people know this. You know that you're a slave to the sin in you. You know you can't change. Every New Year's resolution reminds you that you can't change. Every diet that you start reminds you that you cannot change. You know who knows this better than anybody? Alcoholics. Alcoholics who go to AA and they know they can't change. I think it's rule number two. I, uh, I, I am, or rule number one, I think is, or confession number one is I am powerless to change. Whatever. I, I don't know. It's all based on the Bible. It's all based on the gospel. It's been abducted by secularists, but AA originally was started by a devout biblical Christian. Anyway, alcoholics know this. Addicts know this. They can't change. Well, <laughs> you can be addicted to something other than drugs and alcohol. You can be addicted to materialism, consumerism. You can be addicted to people's approval, people's affection. You can be addicted to the, the praise and the applause of crowds. And, and, and nothing satisfies you. Like we know this. We, we, we know that that we cannot, this is number three, we cannot work or achieve our way out of this slavery to sin. We need something outside of us to save us. This is why advertisers make money because they are constantly telling you this cream will make you young, this outfit will make you slim, this degree will make you stand out, this lifestyle will give you good standing in the community. We try desperately to justify our lives, but we can't and we know this. We can be acceptable in the, in the eyes of untold numbers of people and still know that we're not all that. 
Because it's not the standing that we have before people that matters. It's the standing that we have before God that matters. This is why a celebrated Hollywood star will never be happy no matter how many fans adore them. Because no amount of human praise can substitute for the praise that comes from God. That's the only opinion that matters and everyone instinctively knows that. So we cannot work or achieve our way out of this. The wrath of God stands against us. But Christ, God has done something in Christ Jesus and justification plus propitiation through redemption equals salvation. What is salvation? It is not just going to heaven when you die. It is right standing with God. It is living with God. It is the confidence that you have of knowing God. So in Christ Jesus, now I stand justified. I belong to God. Jesus has set me free from bondage to sin. The righteousness of God is accounted to me. Now let me stop here for a second on this one. Number three, Jesus has set me free from bondage to sin. That doesn't mean that Christians won't ever sin. And it doesn't mean that Christians won't genuinely struggle with sin, even with repetitive sin. What it means is now you are freed from not being freed to not sin. <laughs> I know I said that sounds so awkward, but you have now got the ability to obey God. Whereas before Christ, you did not have the ability to obey God. And you're going to, like the Israelites, long for Egypt in your wilderness wanderings. But God is going to continue to bring you through and deliver you and sanctify you. Thanks for being here tonight, guys. Go to TimHatchLive.com or all the social media sites, Tim Hatch Live. Follow us, like us, subscribe to the channel. You know you want to give the birds beard, <laughs> the bird, give the beard some love. You know you want to do it. So subscribe, uh, hit the like button, um, buy some swag on Tim Hatch Live if you would. And I'm going to ask you directly, help us out. Become a supporter of Tim Hatch Live. I'm asking you for your support. If you were blessed by this ministry, drop some money in. If you have been blessed spiritually, help us out materially. This is not my job. I do this on the side because I love to teach the Bible. But we're trying to do some things with the channel. We want to grow it, want to develop it. We want to get the word out. Your giving empowers this channel to go further through advertising and other outlets such as Rumble and beyond. By the way, reminder that 10 Questions with Tim is the first Thursday of every month and it's never too early to get your questions in at ask at timhatchlive.com or the comments below. Those questions, thoughts fill up real fast. The Deep End is back next Tuesday night. Halloween special, guys. Next Tuesday night, Halloween. Should you celebrate it as a Christian? We're going to answer that. We're going to do a Deep End episode about that. God bless you guys. Love you. Take care. Have a good night. Peace.